Good morning. And it is a beautiful, beautiful morning. I'm a little slow on the draw, but... Uh, well, this morning we're in chapter 24, 1 Samuel chapter 24. The last verse of chapter 23 tells us that David went to the strongholds of Engedi. And the first verse of chapter 24 reminds us that once Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of in Getty. So, I would like to show you some pictures of in Getty, just to give you a feel uh, for, for what it says. Because in the next verse, it will talk about the wild goats' rocks. And we'll see a picture of that. But first, this is where in Getty is. It's uh, on the coast of the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on earth. I mean, you know, exposed spot. On earth. And uh, it's, it's, it's very arid and it is quite a wilderness. You can see a little bit more of the topography of the territory. And these are wild goats rocks. In fact, you'll see them along the ridge line and on the walls of the rocks. They're actually uh, lots of ibex there. I do have a picture of that. There is water as well, which made it a good place to hide out. Those are a couple of pictures side by side. Isn't that beautiful? Makes you want to go there. Take a, take a quick dip. So it gives you a feel and you can see some of the rocky crags and the caves that are referred to. And here is a picture of the ibex. Yeah, they just trip around up there. Let's read the rest of Samuel. Chapter 24, we'll start at verse 2. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it, seems, as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David heart, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men 
with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. The odds are against David. Saul has five times the troop strength and the quality of men that David has. And David and his militia are hiding back in this cave, some which are very large. And to their relief and Saul's, the king stoops into their cave to relieve himself. Saul is totally vulnerable. And David's men see in this occasion the hand of the Lord and the fulfillment of a word of the Lord to David. And they encourage David to rise up against Saul, reminding him of this word, which is like a green light. Well, David moves towards Saul stealthily, and with his robe spread out, he takes a notch out of the hem of the garment that Saul had about him. And what is notable is, and the English Standard Version says, David's heart struck him. Some of our translations try to modernize that a little bit to explain that he had a real pang of conscience as soon as he did that. And in verses 6 and 7, when David returns, the men, they're still hot to kill Saul. And David, in very strong language of 1 Samuel, uh, David, in verse 7, uh, the ESV says, persuaded them, when in fact the word is quite unusual here. It means he tore them in two. This is a kind of word that would be used of a, of a ravenous beast that tears something apart. And I think it's to give us a picture of one, David has to really stand up to his men. And he's, he's explained this, and so persuading him means he really, I think, kind of gets, like we would say, man, he really tore into them. Maybe that's the notion. Or maybe in the sense of dividing he divided them, maybe with his own body. He had to hold them back because he did not want them. They were so ferocious to kill Saul. Why didn't David get revenge? What stopped him? I would tell you, Based on these verses, and I want to share some of these insights with you this morning, that David loved the Lord more than he loved getting revenge on Saul. He loved the Lord more than he loved getting revenge on Saul. And <clears throat> that may not be utterly profound, but it's real life for those of us who know the Lord. And it is in such a critical moment as this, that that love for the Lord, that character of love for the Lord, really kicks in. 
And it brings to mind something that has a real great deal of merit. You are what you love. You are what you love. And it, that can mean something to us in terms of, you know, when I said I love the Lord years back, it didn't mean as much as it means today. Those things have been ingrained in me, my very nature. Uh, it comes so much more easily for me to want to do what the Lord wants me to do. It, it, it is so much easier for me now to think about what would be the Lord's path or way in this situation. Some situations which are not black and white and very, very clear to me. Um, that comes over time. And this message may encourage you to continue on that path to deepen your love for the Lord. And a part of that love comes with the imagination of the truth of, the, of God's Word in your life and, and what God wants to do in your life, through your life, and in the lives of His people, His church, across this nation and around this world. Because it is that imagination that comes with desire and want, which is a very constituent part of love, that that kind of thing kicks in when, in fact, we fill our minds with lots of things, but what we really want and what we really de desire often takes over, and that's often what we do. And here, what David really loves is in play, and it makes a huge difference. At a critical moment like this, here we can... We can identify with such a moment as we identify with David. But it is in critical moments like that. And which moments aren't? You be the judge. But it's at those moments that we find out what we really love. Augustine, the 5th century church father, brilliant, converted. He was a philosopher. Um, what an impact on the church his life had in all of his writings. You can still access them and get a lot of them for free, and they're a good read. But in his City of God, as opposed to the City of Man, in his City of God, he said, to discover the character of any people, we have only to observe what they love. Because that is what really surfaces. Uh, you know, sometimes we can know what's right, but we don't do what's right. And I think we lack the imagination. Our imagination is warped because what we want we think is better than what God wants. <clears throat> it's been expressed of the heart that it's a desire factory. I think we could all attest to that. But with that in mind, Henry Skugel said, the worth and the excellence of a heart is measured by the object of its desire. The worth and the excellence of a heart is measured by the object of its desire. What uh, is the object of your desire? Well, if it is the Lord, and I think we would all agree, that's why we're here. He's the object of our desire. But it doesn't come without spending time with him and building that relationship and trusting him by faith in things that 
kind of in a knee-jerk or reactionary way, we think, you know what, I've got this, I know how I want this to go, I'll just take this into my own hands. We only cultivate that love through trusting Him, following His ways, you know, sharing His heart toward our situation and things, and having a desire to see His outcome rather than perhaps a selfish or individual or private outcome. David loved the Lord, wanted and desired the Lord's way more than he wanted his own way. And that love showed up at a critical moment of great decision, but it wasn't absolutely pure. It was just very human. And that's what I want to kind of help us to see. There are four keys here that I want to bring to your attention in verses 4 and 5. So I want to call your attention to some words in verse 4 and in verse 5. The first thing is the Lord said to you. The words, the Lord said to you. You see that? That's what the men say. They draw David's attention to what the Lord said to you, David. And they know about this because David had to have told them. That's very important because that legitimizes this. I did consult some scholars, and three of them that I found thought that this, this, since it wasn't recorded anywhere else in Scripture, and that isn't a final, there are, there are things that are not recorded in Scripture that are of the Lord. So, but it's not previewed or, or given to us before in the storyline, the narrative flow of 1 Samuel. And for that reason, they suggest that the men didn't understand it. If, if David did say, you know, if, if it was a true word to David, they misunderstood it. I see no reason to think of it that way. Some say, well, it's a, it was a general thing, and the men have applied it in a specific way. This is not a general statement. The enemy is singular. It refers to giving him, singular, into your hand, singular. This is a very pointed prophecy, and the most telling proof that I think this is a legitimate, so to speak, word of the Lord to David that he shared with his men, and now they all recognize that it is the occasion of its fulfillment in the rest of the chapter, and you can read it later this week. We'll be back in the rest of the chapter next Sunday, Lord willing. And um, I'll sound better, Lord willing. But in the rest of the chapter, it becomes very clear that Saul and David both recognize that this has been the hand of the Lord. And it's repeated and becomes a very significant feature of their interaction and the lessons to be taught and to be learned. The second thing, the words, into your hand, into your hand. When something's in your hand, it expresses power. Back in chapter 23, the word hand occurred nine times. In chapter 24, it occurs 11 times. That's a lot of hands. And it is drawing attention to the use of the hands, the use of power. 
And that will come into play as we put these things together. The third thing, um, <coughs> all of the reputable translations say something to the effect of, do what is good in your eyes. Is that what you're saying? Do what is good. No, it doesn't say that, does it? They all say, do what seems good to you. But it literally says, do what is good in your eyes. And that's, that's uh, not our usual language. So it's okay for translations to do that, but it kind of conceals the emphasis on the expressions in your eyes going back into Judges and into Samuel. And I'll bring up just a couple of points about that. Because in your eyes is a rather vital expression here, in my opinion. And then the fourth thing in verse uh, 5, his heart struck him. Some of our translations refer to his conscience was grieved. Um, that's fair enough. It is. But <clears throat> the heart is the seat of all of your thinking and action. It is like the command center of life. And that his heart struck him uh, is important to me because it goes to the heart of the Lord. So, with that in mind, I do want us to appreciate verse 4 and verse 5 are critical, in my opinion, to understanding what's happening in 1 Samuel 24. When the Lord said on that occasion, do what is good in your eyes, um, it, it it's now that not only his men, but David and even Saul realize that that occasion has come. It's been realized. And David has a green light to do what is good in his eyes. He has a green light. It's his eyes. But the question, I do think, becomes what is good in David's eyes? And he goes forward, and instead of killing Saul, he takes a cutting from the hem of Saul's garment, but immediately his heart strikes him. I mean, this is a word that you would use like a slap or a sucker punch. His heart kind of reacted to what David did. Now, when we look at that, we think, wow, that was a pretty merciful thing. His own men want him to kill him. God has given him a green light. But instead of that, he just cuts the hem of his garment. He notches it. But that was very symbolic. And that's what I want us to appreciate. Cutting the hem had enormous symbolic significance. It was an act of rebellion. And... <clears throat> In effect, in this situation, because Saul is the Lord's anointed, David has been anointed, but he has not acceded to the throne yet. That won't happen until he's 30 years of age, and in chapter uh, 2 of Second Samuel, and so for David to notch that, he is in effect saying, your reign is over, and my reign has begun. And there's a, a, an important, uh, this, is, this is 
common within the ancient Middle East, the, the, the sacred nature of the robe and its symbolic importance uh, for the king or high dignitary. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 27 and 28, Samuel is turning away from Saul because Saul has again done what is right in his eyes and not what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And as Samuel turns away, Saul is really shook by this because he knows that if Samuel removes, so to speak, his approval, recommendation, and honor from Saul's reign, this is going to be bad for politics for Saul. And so he reaches out and grabs Saul's robe, and Samuel pull, I mean, from Samuel's robe, Samuel pulls it away and it rips, and then Samuel comes back at Saul and he says this in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Did David have some rebellion in his mind? I think he did. I think he wanted to do the right thing. He, it was beyond him to kill Saul. But I think he's ticked at Saul. He is. Saul's been trying to kill him for several years now. He's been on the run. He's been living out in the wilderness, in the desert. Sometimes, come on. You guys know what I'm talking about. You have a really bad day. You want a little love, and sometimes you, you bite back. And when you know you should be kind and loving and God's grace should just be effervescent and overflowing in your heart, and it's not like that, and, and maybe your conscience challenges you at that point, and you realize, uh, yeah, I crossed the line there. That really isn't the heart or the way of the Lord. I think that's what happened to David here. I think he was thinking, I'm, I'm not going to take his life. But man, I've, I've, I do have it in for this guy. And he notches his robe. And as soon as he does that, his heart convicts him because he knows. He knows he's overstepping. It's like when Jesus talked about... <clears throat> you know, the spirit of something as opposed to the letter of it and how we can commit adultery in our heart or we can wrong in our heart even though without our hands and our actions. If we just limit the way we think about the Lord's will and His ways in terms of those external actions that we engage in, then it's just a matter of letter and not spirit. And we're not really kind of growing into the Lord and, and beginning to feel what he feels, see people the way he sees them. And we know all of this because of the Messiah, who is the heir of David, who is the fulfillment of the reign, the perpetual reign of the covenant of David. And he went to the cross for everyone. And he rose again. Not that we should just stumble along, but in rising and being exalted to the right hand of the Father, he poured out his Holy Spirit that we might be closer to him than we would be if we were geographically and spatially in the same room with Jesus because his Spirit is the Jesus character and Jesus person 
in our, in our lives. So maybe you can see some, some room for connections and analogy there. Paul, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, David, his heart struck him because he regrets his violation of Saul's robe, and it, it tells us that David's initial motivation was not so high-minded. But David wants God's heart. And I love this. That's what we want. We want God's heart. He's, David's better than his men in this sense, but he knows better because his heart belongs to the Lord. It's not the damage done, which I think, I mean, I too, I just think, wow, when I first read this, I thought, what a good guy. And he is a good guy, you know. You, get, you understand what I'm trying to get at. And yet his heart struck him, smote him, would be your King James. He knows better because his heart belongs to the Lord. It's an attitude of the heart that David recognizes is not in harmony with, uh, with God and God's treatment or way of treating not only Saul, but the kingdom and whoever the king is. And that would be David someday. <clears throat> and I think David saw that. In 1 Samuel 13, chapter 13, verse 14, we're told the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. I think David is that guy, just like you are. I think you are a person with a heart after the Lord. But there are going to be times where what you really love may call you in a direction that actually is in contradiction to the spirit and the heart of the Lord himself. And the Holy Spirit will convict you. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. In 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we're in 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, the very last chapter of the two-book Samuel series, in the 14th verse, the situation is, is that David has done something that is in complete violation of what the Lord wanted him to do. And so now there's punishment. And David wants that punishment on himself and not on others. And so he goes to Gad. Remember Gad the prophet? By the way, it may have been through Gad, it may have been through Abiathar that David got this word of the Lord. But he goes to Gad and he says, man, this is, this is too much for me. He says, I, I want this punishment to be on me. So Gad comes back to David and he says, well, David, you have two choices. The Lord has given you a choice. Uh, you can either fall into the hands of your enemies or you can put yourself into the hands of the Lord. And this is what David says. He says, the Lord has torn, <clears throat> excuse me, Oh, my goodness. Oh, it, it, here we go. <sighs> Let the punishment fall on me, not the people. Let me fall 
into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Who would you rather fall into the hand of? I think if, you know, if, if your life is all about rule-keeping and performance and trying to earn your way into the heart and grace and goodness of the Lord, you are, you are going about this the, whole, the wrong way. You are not appreciating fully what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and in pouring out his Holy Spirit. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to be sinners. We repent on a regular basis. Goodness sakes, I probably repent several times a day. And we all ought to be if we're in tune and we're pinging off the Lord. But David has this view of the Lord that he says, I don't want to be in the hands of human beings. And I think sometimes we would rather be in the hands of human beings than we would in the hands of the Lord. But if you stare at the cross and the resurrection and you read about the life of Jesus or read the writings of Paul that illumine what God did in Jesus Christ and what it means to us, I mean, channel, turn the channel to all of the forgiveness, the love, the grace, the goodness. Let that motivate you, inspire you, and, it, you know, really expand your imagination of what the Lord could do in your life if you were trusting him. And be expectant and hopeful and excited about it. David wants not only what's, what's, wants God's heart, but he wants what is good in God's eyes, not his own eyes. Verse 4, and the word of the Lord, what I'm calling the Lord's word, to you. <clears throat> I'm going to call it the word of the Lord. David could have concluded, I can do whatever I want. The Lord said I could. And the Lord did. He said, do what is good in your eyes. But David didn't look at it that way. He looked at it as though, what does the Lord want me to show him seems good to me? Is what seems good to me the same as what is good to the Lord? In chapter 24, verse 10, we're back in 1 Samuel chapter 24. David says to Saul, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But, and here's where you expect... He mentions Saul's eyes. It's not in the text, but it's supplied. But my eyes had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, over and again in Judges, you remember, Saul's the first king. David is going to be the successor to Saul because Saul hasn't cut bait. But throughout Judges, there is a constant refrain. The people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in two places, but most notably, the very last verse of Judges said, and it says this, that the people 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the very last verse of Judges. And when Samuel comes on the scene, he wants the respect, he wants the honor, he wants the following of the people. So he'll pitch his ideas, and the people, they don't see him as kingly, and they say, do what is right in your own eyes. You can find that in Judges 14, verse 36 and 40. Do what's right in your own eyes. Yes, the Lord gave David a chance to do what was right in his own eyes, but if I were to put this in my own feeble words, I would say the Lord was hoping David would see it his way and not David's way. David wants to rule as the Lord rules. Saul says in verse 17, if you look at verse 17, Saul says, you are more righteous than I am to David. You are more righteous than I am. And in verse 18, he says, the Lord has delivered me into your hand, yet you did not kill me. He says, you dealt well with me. And then in verse 19, to top it all off, and I'm just going to give you my own translation of verse 19, he basically says, David, you're out of this world, man. Nobody does what you did. Because if you read 19, he says, who, who among us, in other words, of all who, when he has his enemy in his hand, does not kill him. David doesn't want to be that kind of king. He doesn't want to be just part of the flock. He's supposed to be king. He's got a heart for the Lord and God's kingdom. So he's not going to stoop and do what Saul does, which debases the kingdom of God and makes it very human. This is powerful stuff. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, no evil or rebellion is in my hand. Well, in your hand is the power. And he wants Saul to know. Now, he doesn't say, in my heart. But he says, in my hand. And that's good. That's a promise he can take to the bank. Because if his heart's with the Lord, it'll be in his hand. That's for sure. He David's hand and heart are controlled by the Lord. In fact, after his conscience or after his heart struck him, he holds back his men from hurting Saul. And then he goes out and he has his conversation with Saul. And I hope you'll read the rest of the chapter, the whole chapter again, the rest of the chapter this week for sure. And pay attention to the mannerisms of David and how respectful and courteous, but he still speaks truth to power. Don't miss that. He may be the Lord's anointed, but when he's wrong, he can be called on it. But there's a way to do that, and David does it. And it's a beautiful thing. And it should characterize us, too, in the way we handle difficult situations, especially if we handle them in the Lord. So I ask you, who are the anointed in your life? It's kind of a trick question because I don't even like that question. I don't know how you would answer that. I know people have tried. And some would say all Christians are the anointed and they can find verses for that and so forth. But here's a safer route to go. Who is the Lord's anointed? That's Jesus Christ. 
And if you have his heart and his outlook, and you see the world his way, and you foster that, and you, you know, cause that to grow in you, it will become a part of your character, a part of your love for the Lord, and you will be what you love. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. That is a powerful statement. And you know it's true when he's Lord that his love controls us. It compels us. As we think about the Lord and his love for us, we come to his table, which is a reminder. Some do it weekly. Some do it every day. We do it the first Sunday of every month as a rule. But the most important thing is that we are to be reminded of his love and the basis of our fellowship and who we are in Christ. And it's made up of the bread which represents his body, which was given for you and me. He gave himself for us. We can therefore be giving beyond ourselves when he's Lord. And the cup, the new covenant in my blood, said Jesus. This new covenant means that we're not operating by old ways. We're operating by a new way in Jesus Christ, even known in the first century as the way. This is a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate. This is what we remember. This is what we love. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the outpouring, the gift of your Spirit. May your spirit energize us, even as David does, as an example. As we navigate daily this world in which you've placed us and provided, given us provision to live and serve in your way, to be so different in Christ. That's a growing thing, Lord. We wish to grow this morning even as we remember and as we confess symbolically in taking the bread and the cup, our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.